Hello, I'm Steven, and this is the American Age, Notes Edition. The internet took us all by surprise. We are all constantly talking to one another. This is what we are doing on the internet. This is what keeps us up all night. This is what we mindlessly reach toward when we are lonely or just plain bored. This is what Ian Bogost writes about in his article, People Aren't Meant to Talk This Much, published in The Atlantic, October 22nd, 2021. Basically, the article explores how we communicate with one another before the digital age and, well, where we are now. Social media sites mediate and encourage how we communicate and, I'd say, miscommunicate with one another. Think about what Bogost suggests here, and I quote, Before online tools, we talk less frequently and with fewer people. The average person had a handful of conversations a day, and the biggest group she spoke of, spoke in front of, was maybe a wedding reception or a company meeting, a few hundred people at most. Maybe her statement would be recorded, but there were a few mechanisms for it to be amplified and spread throughout around the world, far beyond its original context, unquote. Magost also has an interesting take on meaningful relationships versus access, quality versus quantity. And most of all, the idea that more means better. But for whom and how? These issues loom large in my own digital life, which I'll get into in my response to it separately. Suffice it to say, technology has made us all talk a gillion more times than we had only less than 20 years ago. Is it Facebook's fault? Can regulations help? Honestly, I do not know. Hi, this is Seth Rodney and... You are listening to the American Age Podcast, and this is my note on the article, People Aren't Meant to Talk This Much, written by Ian Bogost. So Stephen suggested that we read this, and I'm really glad he did. It's an article that feels timely and insightful in a lot of ways. I may end up talking about the ways in which it, I think, misses the mark, but I want to first say that Bogo's chief observation that, quote, the capacity to reach an audience some of the time became contorted into the right to reach every audience all of the time, unquote, is pretty spot on. I think it's a bit of an exaggeration. I don't think we want to reach, I don't think that people who use social media, uh, uh, let's say aggressively, or maybe the better word is professionally. Uh, I don't think that people who do that and want to reach every audience, but they want to reach a large audience. They want to have impact on other people's lives. I think that's one of the ways that our culture has taught us that we can be important, or valued, valuable, meaningful. So this thing with talking to more people than we can uh, meaningfully do, I think, is something that, yet is, yes, is a baked-in problem with regards to social media. I do think that where Bogos goes off the rails a little bit is when he talks about limitations that we might put on social media uh, platforms such as Facebook and, and um, Instagram and uh, Twitter. He says, quote, it should be shocking that you pay no mind 
to recomposing an idea so it fits in 280 characters, but that you'd never accept that the resulting message might be limited to 280 readers or 280 minutes. Yet nothing about the latter is fundamentally different from the former. That's not quite true. There's something fundamentally different about limiting the reach of something to 280 readers. You might be able to limit the message, but if you're limiting the reach to 280 readers, you're doing something, I think, categorically different in that you are uh, determining the extent to which something may be meaningful, uh, uh, more or less. Whereas 280 characters, you're not necessarily doing that because in 280 characters, we can, our human beings can be quite meaningful. So composition, uh, limiting something on the composition end and limiting something at the, uh, the end of the reception end, I think are really very different things. That said, it made me think of, that suggestion made me think of a piece that I had something to do with generating for hyperallergic. There's a, a, um, I'm actually looking for it now. I thought I had it up and apparently I do not. There's a, uh, an article, an opinion piece that, uh, I, edited, which is a, which is written by a frequent contributor of ours named Filippo Lorenzen. That's F-I-L-I-P-P-O. Lorenzen is L-O-R-E-N-Z-I-N. It was published October 10th, and it's about an exhibition. Well, the title of the piece is an exhibition that helps us rethink our relationship to Facebook. And in that, essentially, this is a review uh, Filippo talks about the, United, the U.S. artist Ben Grosser, who created this uh, exhibition titled Software for Less. And in it, he has a couple of pieces that are really kind of innovative ways of thinking about this, this, this idea of limitations. Um, he has a piece, Grosser has a piece called SafeBook, which is from 2018, which is a web browser plugin that purifies, purifies Facebook pages by filtering out all the text and images to leave only the interface elements. So you have gray buttons, blue circles, white squares, that sort of thing, all the design elements. Uh, and so you have essentially just these like little sort of almost Lego-like building blocks that Filippo describes as a kind of utopia of interaction. Uh, instead of... Uh, dealing with uh, these messages that mm, cause a lot of ire or stress or spread misinformation, just playing, playing with little blocks. And that's Grosser's sort of answer to uh, the sort of pernicious, more pernicious effects of Facebook. He has another piece, which uh, I think is really wonderful, which is called, titled Minus, and it's from 2021. And he's essentially, in Minus, he's created a finite social network where users only get 100 posts for life. Imagine that. If Facebook limited us to only saying 100 things in our lifetimes, 
I love that. You really have to parcel things out carefully. We'd be so much more attentive and and thoughtful and and caring. I think if we did actually have some guardrails put on our social media activity. So I think that's where Bogos mostly gets it right. And uh I'm completely in favor of doing exactly that. I would very much like to see that happen in the world. Hi, this is C. Travis Webb, and this is my note for this week's installment of The American Age. Uh, we're talking about Ian Bogos' article uh, in The Atlantic, People Aren't Meant to Talk This Much, is the title of it. And, you know, he starts off by referencing that Dunbar's number, which, you know, you may have heard of. It certainly has made the rounds a lot over the years. Uh, and that's basically the idea that the number of social relationships we can have is proportional uh, and related to our brain size. So basically, larger brained primates are able to have and maintain uh, more social relationships. And 150 is the number of social contacts you can have. You can have an, a maximum of something like five intimate contacts, but you can know the names of up to 1,500 people and can have a variety of more superficial relationships along that spectrum. So five to 1,500. And of course, those aren't exact numbers, but they're pretty, you know, they're pretty roughly accurate to what Dunbar found. And um, Dunbar has uh, defended this in a book and um, and a number of research articles have backed it up that you know basically essentially that we were designed to have a, a kind of a, a finite number of social relationships. And Bogos' argument is that social media has completely disrupted this natural order. Um, and that we were never meant to talk to this many people. We were never meant to listen to this many people. Uh, we were never meant to have our views of the world shaped by this many people. And uh, lots of, you know, kind of invectives against social media. There's a, you know, a kind of a sidebar about, you know, Google Plus having a different approach. And, and uh, Bogost has these different ideas about, you know, maximum number of days that you can post and, and whatnot. Um, you know, I have a lot. I am not a defender of social media in general. It's here. It's not going away. Um you know, I've recently taken to using Twitter more. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Probably depends on who you talk to. Some people would probably say not a good thing. Um, you know, so I'm not someone that's an avid social media user. So I'm not, I would not defend it on those terms, but I am very suspicious of arguments like Bogosts that want to blame social media for even a significant portion of the ills that are plaguing society. Um, and his article in the Atlantic, really, there are a lot of gaping silences in the article that he just doesn't deal with. So let's just talk about a couple of them. So of course, this Dunbar number, I actually find the argument pretty compelling. I've known about it for a while. Uh, it seems entirely plausible to me that the number of social relationships we could maintain is correlated to uh, our cognitive capacity. That makes perfect sense to me. What's 
seriously lacking in his argument, Bogos' argument, and these other arguments, these other invectives, is that it's been centuries since that was an upper limit to human relationships. Elites have been able to forge large-scale social networks far exceeding our evolutionary capacities for thousands of years. I mean, we've all heard of places like Sumer and Mesopotamia and Egypt and the Chang Dynasty and, you know, Mesoamerican empires. I mean, I'm trying to just give you a long uh, a laundry list. I mean, it has been a very long time since civilization has been bounded by Dunbar's number. Now, individuals may be bounded by Dunbar's number, but civilization has not been has not had to deal with this as a serious restriction on size. What has been the case is that as civilization and symbolic cultures have expanded, an elite cadre of people, humans, have maintained the symbolic relationships necessary to keep these large-scale civilizations going. So it's required the production and maintenance of symbols in order to convince people that they're Egyptian, in order to convince people that they, you know, in order to convince someone living in Akron, Ohio, who I will never see in any context, that they are an American and that I am an American and that we somehow share something in common, even though we are not in any sense occupying the same space or time, given, you know, shifting time zones and whatnot, that we can identify as being American or North American or whatever, what have you, requires a tremendous amount of symbolic effort. That has nothing to do with Dunbar's number. What it has to do with is an elite group of people that are able to produce the symbols and then consume the symbols to allow us to believe that we are participating in the same society, in the same culture, in the same project. Uh, Benedict Anderson called this an imagined community, uh, and they stretch very far back in time. The fact that you would think that Catholics in the 21st century would have something to some relationship to, you know, people want mendicants wandering around the Sea of Galilee in the first century is an incredible feat of the imagination that holds the whole thing together. So when I read arguments like Bogos, what I read is a tremendous amount of anxiety about who gets to produce this culture, who gets to consume this culture, who gets to say what it is to be an American, who gets to say what it is to be an elite, who gets to make taste, who gets to decide what we should consume. You know, Bogos leaves out the history of television. Like, you know, television has been around for, I guess, what are we going on, like 70 years, 80 years, something like that, wide scale use. And television and television society, uh, uh, culture and radio culture greatly expanded our ability to speak to one another, except that it was an elite group of people that got to enter into the television industry, that got to become radio producers and radio announcers, and got to decide what the culture was. And social media has radically democratized that process. Now, I get the arguments against Facebook and Twitter and Google and kind of the larger corporations that are shaping this discourse. And and I'm not really going to talk about that because it's kind of a different bag of worms. I do think it's a very fair argument to have. I do have a lot of concerns about it. 
um, the ways that algorithms are shaping the conversations that were happening are happening the way that certain conversations get amplified or downgraded so you know i'm not saying social media is this unqualified democratic good that's not my point my point is that but ghost and these other arguments what they're ha what they have anxiety about I mean, one of the things he says in the article is you know maybe we should limit the number of posts that someone can put out to me that sounds like someone that's like Jesus Christ, I can only write one or two articles a month and these people are producing content every day. Like there's a kind of anxiety. You can't keep up. You can't compete with it. Now that may not all be quality, but I think if any of us who have been reading for decades know that something being in print or having editorial approval does not mean that it is fit for consumption. So all of this, all of this anxiety, I mean, it's just kind of is beside the point you can do what you want. I mean, the government feels like it's moving in the direction of regulating social media and whatnot. Ultimately, it's going to fail. Like, it's just not going to work. These tools are out there. They're in the wild. And they are allowing more people to have more say about what counts as what counts as worthy of attention than at any point in human history. And a lot of people, including myself, to be quite honest, are very afraid of that. And I do not know where this is going to go. I don't know where things are going to end up. It, you know, the world has always been mad and loud and chaotic, always. We've digested history in narrative bites that convince us that there is something, you know, definitive about the fall of Rome. There is something definitive about the rise of the Catholic Church. There is something definitive about 1776. And of course, all of these are relevant, important, necessary dates for the birth of symbolic culture. But underneath those dates were millions of people farming, getting drunk, fucking, doing all of the things that we do today. And no one wrote or thought about them or had anything to say about the classes of people that were not participating in elite revolutions or elite cultural discourse. And so what we have right now is frightening. And I don't know, maybe we will sort of tear ourselves apart. Uh, I don't think I believe that. I think that I, I, I think I still, at the end of the day, believe in the basic goodness of most people and that this proliferation of voices will ultimately lead us to a good place. Um, and when I get most, you know, concerned about, and I'll, I'll kind of close with this, when I get most concerned about the kind of cacophony of media and the speed of history, I think of something that Alan Watts had said in his his radio uh, show that he had in the, the 60s and se I think 70s is when he was doing his radio show, is, you know, fruit and apple tree apples, peach trees, peach, and planets people. Sometimes, weirdly, out in the vast emptiness of space, these rocks form around stars and planets people. They grow people, just like apple trees apple. And on this particular planet, the peopling is out of control.
And life has always been out of control. And I don't know where that's going to go. I don't know if it's going to go anywhere productive. But I know that I am happy to be along for the ride. And I'm happy to see where it goes. And I do not share the same anxiety that the writers of The Atlantic share about the proliferation of media. Thanks very much for listening. Hi, I'm Stephen G. Fullwood, and here's my take on People Aren't Meant to Talk This Much for American Ages Notes. Two of my close friends have told me that they can't make new friends because they have trouble maintaining the friendships that they currently have. They were the most reluctant to join social media because of that and because they are private people. But I am different. I have a big mouth and I like making new friends. And while I sympathize with my pals, I think of new people as opportunities to learn and grow and love. And those new people get me. Win-win. Decades before the internet, when I was a skinny, anxious teenager, I liked telling people, well, clarifying with people, that I have friends and I have associates. For example, she is an associate. I work with her. She is not a friend. Friendship is sacred space for me. I don't conflate it. To do so seems a bit like you don't know who you are and therefore will fall for anyone claiming to be your friend without any sweat, experience, or evidence to back it up. Then the internet comes along all shiny and full of promises of access. But let's be clear, it offers something that it really can't, no matter how hard it wants to try. Meaningful, fulfilling relationships. I like how social media can connect you with like-minded people, and every now and then, a date. But the hard work of being a friend is up close and personal and takes a lot of time. I'm 55, and in roughly two months, I'll be 56. My attention continues to wane as I get older, and I want to focus on my budding visual art practice, among other things. That means fewer social media accounts and interactions, not more. My close orbit of friends and family mean more to me now than ever. I call on them, not some person, not a friend or associate. I added a few days ago on Twitter because we saw each other in an art show and exchanged information. Sociologist Mark Granovetter, who is quoted in this article, affirms my belief in the work, the context, and the familiarity of sometimes hard-won connections. Quote, As people shift their attention from strong to weak ties, the resulting connections become more dangerous. Strong ties are strong because their reliability has been affirmed over time. The input or information one might receive from a family member or co-worker is both more trusted and more contextualized. Unquote. That context means everything to me. What about you? Facebook and other social media sites often feel like one is in the first grade and you throw your arm around it and say, this is my friend. You know little next to nothing about it, but you have some good faith that all will be good, but not necessarily. The article begins with a reference to British psychologist Robin Dunbar, who proposed some three decades ago that our social life has a biological limit, 150. This is the number of people with whom you can have meaningful relationships. I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm always talking to the same 12 people on a weekly basis. Close friends and family. Just look at my phone. Who am I texting? Who calls me? Very, very different than my digital life. Well, not really. The number is basically the same. Maybe, maybe 12 to 20 people may like or regularly comment on a post that I posted. Eight more than the people I speak to on a regular, regular basis. 
In a study in May 2021, Dunbar's number, deconstructed by Patrick Lindenfors, Andres Wardo, and Johan Lind, break down what is called Dunbar's number, that 150 number I mentioned earlier, which originates from an extrapolation of a regression line describing the relationship, the rel- relationship between relative neocortex size and group size in primates, brains and monkeys. However, the enormous 95% confidence rate implied that specifying any one number is futile. A cognitive limit on a human group size cannot be derived in this number. I didn't read the whole um, thing. I just took from their, um, their, their abstract. They're basically saying that their testing exceeded 150 in almost all the cases. And I think that's fine and dandy that we, can, we have maybe have that capacity to do it. But for what? I'd have to say I'd have to sit with this meaningful relationship idea because I think it's complex. I run in different circles, professionally and personally, which do exceed 150 people for sure. Um, and I know that I'm not talking to these people all of the time. It's impossible. I like sleeping way too much. But there are friends and family members who I feel very close to and maintain a loving relationship. And we're not talking weekly or even sometimes monthly. So that's all I got. Bye-bye.